The Politics of Sound with Ian Carnegie. Welcome back. It's September and you're listening to the Politics of Sound podcast. Now, last month's episode was the last of our first season, a season that has lasted almost two years. So we're taking a break for a short while. But we're not going away. Over the next few months, we're going to be presenting a series of compilation shows highlighting the best talk and the best music. We start this month with a roundup of our favourite moments from 2019, starting in May with my first guest, the then editor of Brexit Central, Jonathan Isby. How did he spend the night of the referendum? I mean, I certainly remember that morning very well, and you're right, I certainly didn't go to bed. It was an incredibly exciting moment. And, you know, let us not forget, more people in our country voted to leave the European Union than have ever voted for anyone or anything in British electoral and political history. This but was equally, nearly as many voted to remain. Not, not as many, though. And, you know, it was a clear majority of more than a million votes. But putting this more in a nutshell, what pivotal moments do you think that there were or have been that has left us where we are now in this hiatus? The the pivotal moment was when Theresa May signed up to the Irish backstop and David Davis, the then Secretary of State for Brexit, advised her not to do it and said this this could well be a trap. Uh, She ignored her Secretary of State, she took the advice of the civil servants instead and you know, this is the Irish backstop is probably arguably the, the crux of why we're in this impasse at the moment because that's the key reason why uh, a smallish but significant group of Conservative Brexiteer MPs will not back the deal that she did with the European Union. Is Mrs May the problem? I think... It is increasingly viewed that around Westminster that Theresa May doesn't have the confidence of her members of parliament. She certainly doesn't have the confidence of her party in the country. I used to edit the Conservative Home website. The Conservative Home surveys of party members have seen 82% in the most recent survey that came out saying that she should go now. Who do they want? Well, that's a question. They they want, I think, the Tory party members in the country want a conviction Brexiteer so in the hot seat. Dominic Raab, we're talking Boris Johnson. Those would be the two obvious names, although you know, other Brexiteers are touting themselves. Esther McVeigh has obviously said that she would like to be a contender who's another former cabinet minister who voted for Brexit, who resigned from the cabinet over Brexit. Um... And I think you know, when when the Tory leadership contest happens, and as I say, by the time this podcast goes out, who knows what might have happened? It, the, the starting gun might even be about to be fired. Who knows? But when it does happen, there will be a contest involving a hell of a lot of people who fancy that job. Uh, but the Tory grassroots will get to decide between the top two candidates from the the MPs ballot and. By all, by all accounts, I would be surprised if the more Eurosceptic of those two candidates didn't win that ballot. 
Well, since that interview, Brexit was ratified, the Conservative Party elected Boris Johnson as their leader, and Jonathan Isabey went on to become Communications Private Secretary at the Home Office to Priti Patel. In June 2019, it was the turn of Liberal Democrat MP Tom Brake, who picked Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon as one of his album choices, and told me why he never wanted to be leader of the Liberal Democrats. I've never taken drugs apart from smoking very unsuccessfully a couple of joints which had no effect but I think listening to Dark Side of the Moon is as close as you can get I think to having a I assume uh, a drug experience without actually taking them in terms of listening to just losing yourself in it. No, it's not. Time for me to lead the party. And I have made that clear that as the party's Brexit spokesman, I have my hands rather full at the moment. As a member of parliament who represents a constituency where my majority has never quite been comfortable. In the heady days of 2010, I got the majority up to 5,000, which doesn't really constitute a, a comfortable majority. Uh, but otherwise, it's it's bumped along at 1,500 or 2,000. And in those circumstances, there's a real risk to becoming a party leader uh, where you inevitably need to spend far more time uh, going around the country promoting the party than you do in the constituency. And I'm convinced that it's that constituency focus that has enabled me to you know, whether what have been some pretty tough storms for the Liberal Democrats, uh, certainly in 2015 and 2017 elections. And if I'd not had the focus on the constituency, you wouldn't be interviewing me as the Member of Parliament for Carshot and Wellington. Tom Brake, who lost his seat at the 2019 general election. In July, I spoke with former Labour MEP Mary Hunnibal, who picked the freewheeling Bob Dylan as one of her album choices, and discussed with me the worrying trend of abuse against politicians and other public figures. Yeah, well, it's certainly there, isn't it? And I think what people feel now is that they can express it. And like, you're right, social media has been a vehicle for that. I think in, in the old days when communications were through third-party channels, if you like, like television and radio, you couldn't get that because it was filtered out. It never got there. But now social media is individual and people can just go out there, say what they like, and they can remain anonymous. So I think social media facilitates that. I think it's there because there does seem to be in this country at the moment a real feeling that we don't like it, we don't like being here, we don't like the world. I mean, there is a lot of hate and unhappiness. Um, and it's difficult, really, to kind of quite work out why. I mean, as I said earlier, I do think that people feel left behind, people's wages haven't gone up, people do feel in certain parts of the country that they're not really getting a fair deal. But they felt that also They've in the always, 80s. Exactly, and it wasn't like that then. Um, I think what has happened since Brexit, particularly since Brexit, there seems to be a licence now to be racist because the campaign was racist. I mean, at the end of the campaign with that poster and with 
this whole thing about we'll get a whole get invaded by Turkish people. It gave people permission to make racist statements. So I think it, the Brexit campaign opened up a lot of that. I think that was always there, but people were much more wary about it. Now they feel they can say it. Chris Hedges on the cello there, joining me on the piano to perform Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind. Now, I've always been particularly excited when politicians have revealed their own musical skills. And in August 2019, the very talented Kevin Brennan, Labour MP for Cardiff West, gave his own very special performance on the guitar, harmonica and voice. I'll let him introduce the song. It's a song called Willin'. As in willing, the word, but with an apostrophe instead of a G. It was written by Lowell George, who was the lead songwriter for Little Feet, great swampy southern rock American band. And it's, you know, from that era we've been talking about, 71, 72, which I think produced you know, some of the great music of the 20th century.
rubbed by the sleep And my head stoved in But I'm still on my feet And I'm still Willing And I smuggled some smokes And folks from Mexico Baked by the sun Every time I go Not to be outdone, here's the Conservative MP, John Whittingdale, who joined the Politics of Sound band on vocals to perform his very own version of Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell. Throats are screaming and the fires are howling way down in the valley tonight. There's a man in the shadow with a gun in his hand and a blade shining oh so bright. There's evil in the air and there's thunder in the sky And there's a killer on the bloodshot streets Out down in the valley where the deadly arise You know I swear I saw a young boy God, he was starting to foam in the heat Oh baby, you're the only thing in this whole world That's pure and good and right And wherever you are and wherever you go there's always gonna be some light So crowd it out, I gotta get it out now Before the final crack of dawn So kind of God Together, all the windows will both be so John Whittingdale, the Conservative MP for Malden, with his very own individual version of Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell. In September 2019, I welcomed the Lib Dem MP and former leader of the party, Tim Farron, who picked albums by Prefab Sprout, Public Service Broadcasting and The Avalanches. I asked him why he seemed to radiate such a sense of inner contentment. Well, gosh, um, I think um, Paul, Paul in the New Testament says that uh, I've learned the secret of being content in all circumstances. I'm not sure if I have quite. Um, but, you know, let's be honest, my faith clearly uh, means that you put all of this stuff into perspective. Um, the tribulations of today, and I am utterly appalled at the prospect of Brexit. Um, I think it is the most uh, self-harmful thing any country could ever, in the democratic uh, part of the world, ever have chosen to do. But it's all temporary. Um, all empires come and they go. Um, and our job is to make the best of those things, to remain positive, fight for what's right, um, but never take things so deeply to heart that you can't see the guy on the other side as having value and merit also. 
there's a sense of wonder about the world, about people, about music. Mm. Well, I mean, human beings are wonderful and they're fantastic and they're different and they're complex and they come out with complex and exciting things. Um, and there are certain things I appreciate more than others. Other people will be connoisseurs of different things. So I, I, I love music and I love speeches. I love um, uh, hearing people, um, I, I guess, speak with a kind of, with a poetry, um, which is why I love Kennedy as, a, as an orator and a, and a crafter of messages. Um, and, uh, I, but I, I, I love the quality of listening to a well-crafted song. I am, you know, old-fashioned and say that the album is, uh, is the important cornerstone of, of, of pop music, of rock music, of modern music. I think, um, you know, we all celebrate the one-hit wonder and that's great. Uh, and a great song is something to celebrate. But an album is a body of work. Um, and and that's why I think it's great to have this conversation about three um, albums that I am confident will stand the test of time um, uh, because the sense in which you know, everybody's affected and influenced but um, they are, I think they're, they're albums written um, without being all that bothered about what people will think about them um, and that's the mark of a great songwriter that writes something that's true to them, um, that brings joy to them, and in so doing, bring joy to others. Tim Farron. In 2019, it was the turn of ex-Labour MP, musician and, at that time, head of UK music, Michael Duggar, to visit the Politics of Sound record shop. Now, Michael had resigned from the Shadow Cabinet in protest at the direction in which he felt it was going under the then leader, Jeremy Corbyn. I asked him if he felt that he had been disloyal. Um, oh, I was definitely disloyal, but I was disloyal to what to the direction that he was taking the Labour Party. And in truth, I sat myself and did it quite deliberately. So I was in the shadow cabinet under Jeremy right at the beginning. And we'd kind of agreed to do that because Andy Burnham had said that he would serve in a Corbyn shadow cabinet. And as his campaign manager, I was kind of obliged to do that. But within a few weeks, you know, I just felt like a complete hypocrite because I would sit at the shadow cabinet and listen to and see the way which the Labour Party was heading. And I disagreed fundamentally with it. I didn't think it would work, first of all. I didn't think it was electable. But also I disagreed uh, with it. And at the end of the day, you know, the only person in politics or life that you have to justify yourself to is yourself. You know, you've got to look at yourself in the mirror and measure up what kind of a person are you? What do you believe in, if anything? Um, and I thought this was madness, the way we were heading. Um, and I could see that. In, in what way, particularly? Because, well, because Jeremy really has, has always been outside the mainstream Labour tradition. Labour's always been a centre-left party, a coalition, but he's the party of great figures. So not just the kind of Tony Blairs and Gordon Browns, uh, but Harold Wilson, uh, Clement Attlee. It's much uh, a party of Nye Bevan as it is uh, Ernest Bevan. So whether it was after the Second World War, 
forging close relationship with the United States, about having the nuclear deterrent, really difficult decisions, but really necessary, taking Britain into NATO. Uh, later on, if you think, the campaign in Kosovo, um, with the NATO operation there, which was about combating the uh, genocide of, of Muslims. That was absolutely, that military action was absolutely the right thing to do. Now, Jeremy Corbyn will never take military action. I think he denies this, but he's a pacifist. And that's okay. I respect people who are pacifists, who just, they're under no circumstances are they in favour of ever taking military uh, action. You know, decent principled people, Quakers. And so I respect the the position in a, in a moral sense and an intellectual sense, but he's not the basis of which you can lead a country because the world is an incredibly dangerous place and you have to be able to take tough decisions that are about protecting the security of the country. And on that fundamental question, I disagreed with him. I also hated the way that the debate, contrary to kind of this idea of a, a gentler, kinder politics, I could see it straight away, momentum. This was the politics of the mob, you know, putting pressure on colleagues, packing out meetings, looking at deselection. Uh, and also, the hard left have always had... Uh, you know, an appalling tradition based around anti-Semitism. Um, and three years later, you know, the Labour Party is a huge problem with anti-Semitism. In my view, is institutionally anti-Semitic. Um, and I think Jeremy bears a lot of that responsibility because of his leadership and his failure of leadership. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly on your life You're only waiting For this moment to arrive Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these sunken eyes And learn to see All your life For this moment to be free You're only waiting For this moment to be free You're only waiting For this moment to be free Michael Duggar on vocals and guitar with his own wonderful version of the Beatles' Blackbird. Towards the end of 2019, I met up with musician and leading Extinction Rebellion campaigner Kathy Eastburn to discuss her love of gamelan music, to hear her performance of it, and to hear of her recent experiences of being jailed for her role in the protests of that time. I won't say it was a holiday going to jail, um, but it was tolerable. And um, it's not something I would ever in a million years want to do um, in any normal circumstances. But when you, um, when you read about the science of climate breakdown and what's actually happening now and what's coming down the line um, very shortly if governments don't take massive urgent action, it's, it's so terrifying. I've got two daughters teenage daughters and the way things are at the moment they they don't have a future and that's not a kind of i'm not speaking in metaphor there that's that's the truth and it's just so terrifying and my duty as a mother my 
my role as a mother is to protect my children. So in in that context, going to prison, while not a bundle of laughs, it's necessary. It certainly, when I went to prison in April because of um, my actions uh, back then, it you know all of that really helped raise the profile of the issue. And I think um, most of the public now realise there's a climate emergency, and you know we've got to keep going. Um, so it's in that way, it's worth it. That was Kathy Eastburn. In December, I met up with the award-winning recording and mix engineer and also political campaigner Olga Fitzroy, fresh from her defeat as the Labour Party candidate for Croydon South in the general election. I asked her why she thought that the Labour Party had failed to be elected and who had failed them. Um, I mean, I think it's a number of different factors, but ultimately it was the Labour Party's job to get in power. That's why we exist, is to get in government so we can change things. We're not a protest movement, we are a political party, so our aim is to get in government and we failed in achieving that. And what would you like to see happen now? It's early days and many different directions are being advocated. Yes. But what would you like to see happen? Um, I think, you know, people say we need a period of reflection and I think we really do. People need to really think about why we didn't win the election and how we win the next election uh, um, and not just go down their factional lines or appeal to their particular constituency within the party. I think they need to look at the bigger picture because I think one of the areas where we went wrong was that a lot of the things that we did and we announced felt like they were designed to appeal to Labour Party members rather than the general public. And I think we need to stop thinking like Labour Party members and think like the general public. I mean, Boris Johnson had a very, very simple message and it got through and we didn't have that. But Jeremy Corbyn is hugely popular with the Labour Party in the country. Yeah. Elected with a huge majority, a landslide almost. Yeah. Why would they want to go back to a more centrist position? I think because it's ultimately about getting in government and in the past two elections the general public have told us that they do not want us to govern in the state that we're in. That doesn't mean throwing out every single element of, of the things that have happened to the party in the past five years. I think there's some, a lot of positive things. We've got a lot more activists, a lot more enthusiastic young people and I also think some of the policies are really good. But we do need to listen to the general public because it's ultimately up to them whether we ever get in government again. The last interview of 2019 was with the LBC presenter, journalist and author Ian Dale. Ian picked albums by Blondie, Dire Straits and Mango Groove. I asked him why, when growing up, he had felt it unthinkable to reveal his sexuality, even to those closest to him. Well, at that point, I, I would have been in my teens. Um, you think back to that period, this would have been the mid to late 1970s, early 1980s. And, and I kind of knew in a strange sort of way from the age of seven or eight that I was gay. I had lots of girlfriends, it has to be said. Um, but I wasn't willing to acknowledge it. 
Uh, well, I acknowledged it, but I didn't. I didn't act on it, shall we say, until sort of quite late on. Even at university, where you think, well, that's an, that's somewhere where you ought to be able to be yourself. I can remember at the Freshers' Fair in the second year, where I'd just set up the Conservative Association there, and I walked past the Gay Society, and a guy called Nick Crook, who actually contacted me on Facebook not that long ago, we've had a laugh about this, he... Uh, I reminded him that he had asked me to join as the head of the Conservatives. He said that would be a really big signal if you did that. And I said, well, I'm not gay. So. And, yeah. I did, and I didn't. Um, Quickly walking on to the next Exactly. Um, the and I, and I do regret that because I suppose the big thing that held me back was telling my family. And I, I thought that would be a really big thing. And when which I, it was, you detailed that in the was When I was four, itself. I mean, I only did, to be honest, I only did it when I was literally reached the second round of the selection for Chipping Barnet. And I told the selection committee, which um, was a stupid thing to do in many ways, because I'm pretty sure I now would be the MP for Chipping Barnet had I not done that. Because I, I lost. Which year was that? That was 2003. It's one of the first seats I applied for. In fact, so I think it was you think homophobia was that rife then that they would actually it wasn't, not select you it wasn't, of that? It wasn't that. It well. I had done a really good speech, answered the questions well, and at the end of the first round of selection, this is in front of about 20 or 30 people, um, the chairman of the meeting said, is there something, anything embarrassing about your private or public life that would cause embarrassment to the association? And I said, well, it's not embarrassing to me, and I hope it isn't to you, but you should know that I'm gay. But you should also know that I'm a West Ham fan, which in this area is probably more embarrassing. They all laughed. I thought I'd done it really well. Walked out of the meeting, and the agent ran after me, who was also gay. And he said, what the bloody hell did you do that for? And I said, well, I just told the truth. And he said, well, you've just lost a couple of votes by doing that. Now, to cut a long story short, I missed out getting into the final by two votes. Now, I don't know for a fact that that would have made the difference. But I would have been up against two women in the final. And in those days, if you were one man up against two women, invariably the man always won. Um, so I do look back and think, well, what if? I mean, Theresa Villiers, who won, went on to be Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. That's probably a job that I could have done without doing, I have to say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no disrespect to Northern Ireland. Um, but that I then did get selected for North Norfolk, a very conservative with a small C area, having also told them that I was gay. And I got 66% of the vote. And I thought, well, well done them. And I was the first, I was the first candidate to be selected, having told the selection committee in advance about my sexuality. There were plenty of other gay people who had been selected, but they didn't let on. But fat lot of good it did me. How far, in your experience, would you say society has moved forward on this issue in these hopefully more enlightened times? I think astonishingly so. Um, if you think back in 2014, when the equal marriage legislation went through, uh, a majority of Conservative MPs voted against it, which I thought at the time I was actually quite shocked by. I doubt whether there are more than a handful of those now that would vote the same way, because, I mean, the earth hasn't changed, the heavens haven't opened, we haven't had plagues of locusts. Um, and I think I mean, Nadine Doris wrote the other day that she wishes she could turn back time and change her vote, and she certainly wouldn't vote that way now. And I think she speaks for a lot of people. Um, times have changed. And I don't feel any reservation about talking about these issues. I feel almost a responsibility as somebody who is in the public eye to do so. And I remember, it's just suddenly come back to me, 
about a week after I was selected as a candidate in 2003, I was at the Tory party conference and this young guy, probably, I don't know, 2022, came up to me, had no idea who he was, and he said, thank you. And I said, what for? And he said, for making it easier for the rest of us. And whenever I tell that anecdote, I can feel myself welling up because that that meant an awful lot to me. Because even though, and I don't blame my defeat for the fact that I was a gay candidate in a very small C conservative seat. I think there were people that voted against me for that reason, but that wasn't the reason that I, I lost. Um, but it was easy for others to portray it that way. Um, and nowadays, you have not only openly gay MPs in areas where you would never think that they would be elected, you also have ethnic minority MPs in areas where you would never think they would be elected. I mean, in, in Essex, you've got three... I mean, you've got Pretty Patel, you've got James Cleverley, and who's the third one? Camille Badenoch in Saffron Warden, where I came from. Would anyone seriously have thought that Essex would be a trailblazer for black or Asian Conservative MPs in safe seats, I doubt it very much. We, we have moved a long way. So that's it for part one of this special compilation series of the best of the politics of sound. My thanks to all of the guests who appeared on those first episodes way back in 2019, and of course to all the wonderful musicians who joined me in the band, including Dave Mayle on the guitar and Chris Hedges on the cello. We'll be back on the 1st of October with part two, in which we'll be hearing again from all of the guests who visited the Politics of Sound virtual record shop during the first part of 2020. In the meantime, have a great month. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then.